foreign relations will come to order. Um, I want to thank our distinguished witness today for being here. And you may notice a significant absence on the other side of the podium. There was a, an all-conference meeting that was scheduled by Senator Reid at 10.15, so, um, or 10.30, excuse me. So our, our colleagues on this side of the aisle, I think, may be a little late. But uh, we certainly will welcome them when they come. And again, we thank you, Tony, for being here today. And, testifying before us. When President Obama and President Xi met at Sunnylands in two, 2013, the Obama administration was hopeful about a new direction with U.S.-China relations. Yet since then, it's been difficult to see uh, a lot of calls for optimism. Whether it's China's militarization of the South China Sea or cyber theft or discriminatory trade and investment policies, there are far fewer far more downsides than upsides in U.S.-China relationship uh, over these last days. Regrettably, as the strategic challenges increase, the opportunities for positive engagement diminish. I say this as someone who has always tried to take a balanced view towards China in the hopes of fostering a positive engagement because this relation, relationship remains one of the most consequential for U.S. political security political, security, and economic interest. We've reached a point now, though, where there's no denying the fact that China has positioned itself as a geopolitical rival to the United States. The calculated and incremental strategy on the part of Beijing to challenge U.S. power is having real consequences for U.S. interest in international norms in the Indo-Pacific and beyond. And it's even more troubling that the administration still doesn't seem to have a coherent China policy. For example, in the South China Sea, neither the rhetoric nor the freedom of navigation operations have deterred or slowed down China's land reclamation activities, including the stationing of military-related assets on these artificial islands. Moreover, many experts assess it is increasingly likely that Beijing will declare an air defense identification zone in the South China Sea. And China could, take, uh, could undertake further destabilizing actions if the International Tribunal ruling, as expected, goes against Chinese interest. I'm also frustrated and concerned about the lack of progress on a number of economic and trade-related issues. For more than four years, the U.S. and China have been engaged in a trade war over solar panels and polysilicon imports and exports to make those panels. And, and Tony, I hope in particular you're listening to these comments. Um, as this dispute drags on, it's hurting U.S. producers of polysilicon, one of the main components in the production of solar panels. China's the largest producer of solar panels, and until this trade dispute, the country imported significant quantities of polysilicon made in the United States. I know that Ambassador Froman, and I've talked with him about this, has raised this issue with China's Ministry of Commerce from time to time. But from what I understand, the latest offer from China on polysilicon imports is unacceptable, and it looks like simple protectionism. This market obviously needs to reopen mutually beneficial trade, and I expect this issue to be resolved uh, soon and in a serious way. Uh, the reasonable request made by U.S. polysilicon industries uh, here in the U.S. must be taken into account. Surely the Chinese government and, US, and the U.S. government will be wise enough 
to fully resolve this problem before the committee, before this committee, considers the U.S.-China Bilateral Investment Treaty should it mature and be ready for uh, putting forth here. As I've said previously, I fully appreciate the complexity of the U.S.-China relationship and the need for constructive engagement on a number of issues important to both Washington and Beijing, but merely managing differences with China is not a successful formula, particularly when such management cedes U.S. influence and places American interest at risk in the Indo-Pacific and beyond. North Korea is one area where we hope that there is additional room for cooperation between the United States and China. I know Senator Gardner will certainly want to get into that with his questioning. And that Beijing will follow through on commitments to fully implement new multilateral sanctions. But only time will tell. I hope we will be able to have a thoughtful discussion today, one that outlines tangible steps the administration plans to take in the coming months to safeguard U.S. interests preserve international norms, and maintain peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific. I want to again thank our witness. Uh, I want to thank him for working with us on the issue we talked about just before the meeting started. I want to thank him for his service to our country. We look forward to your testimony, and as you know, without objection, your written testimony will be entered into the record. Um, so if you would, if you could summarize in about five minutes or so, we look forward to questions. And again, thanks for being here. Uh, Mr. Chairman, thank you very much. Uh, members of the committee, thank you. It's very good uh, to be back before this committee and to have the opportunity to discuss our relationship with China, which, as you outlined very well, Mr. Chairman, is complicated uh, indeed. I just got back this past weekend from what was my sixth visit to the uh, Asia-Pacific region in a little over a year. And I've seen with each trip that the rebalance efforts that we've been making to Asia have, in fact, uh, advanced our interests and helped shape uh, Asia's upward trajectory by bolstering our alliances, uh, building new partnerships with emerging countries, strengthening regional institutions and the rule of law, advancing our economic ties, and engaging with China. Um, I'm very pleased to discuss the last pillar uh, of our rebalance with you today. Secretary Kerry has called the relationship with China our most consequential relationship, and it is indeed crucial that we try to get it right. Um, the approach that we've taken to China uh, tries to do three things. It seeks to broaden and deepen practical cooperation on issues of shared concern. It directly confronts and then tries to resolve or at least narrow our differences wherever we can and where we can't to manage those differences peaceably. Uh, over the past year, um, we believe we've seen real progress uh, on important issues that do advance our interests. Uh, the relationship uh, that we've uh, been working with China paved the way for a landmark joint announcement on climate change that galvanized the international community to reach a global climate agreement in Paris last December and signed it in New York just last week. Uh, we engaged China in the global response to Ebola uh, with positive effect. Um, we grounded our work together to craft a deal that prevents Iran from developing a nuclear weapon far into the future. Uh, we produced new confidence-building measures between our militaries, and we sparked growing collaboration to meet development challenges from Afghanistan all the way to Sierra Leone. From top to bottom, the administration has worked to expand and deepen our diplomatic, military, economic, and people-to-people -people ties with China. Uh, since the President took office, uh, our exports to China have nearly doubled. China is now the largest market for American-made goods outside of North America, and it's also one of the top markets for U.S. agricultural exports and a large and growing market for U.S. services. These efforts to deepen bilateral ties have been designed to turn uh, a challenging rivalry into healthy competition and to try to break out of a zero-sum thinking on both sides. 
Uh, we've seen results of this approach in our collaboration on some of the most difficult issues, including most recently uh, North Korea and the provocative, destabilizing, and internationally unlawful actions it continues to take to advance its prescribed missile and nuclear programs. Um, while we've taken significant steps to make it more difficult for North Korea to acquire technology and equipment for those programs or the resources to pay for them, the fact remains that their development continues. As a result, they get closer to the day when they have the capacity to strike at our allies, at our partners, and at the United States with a ballistic missile armed with a miniaturized nuclear warhead. That is simply unacceptable. This threat, combined with an inexperienced leader who acts rashly, makes it an urgent priority not only for us, but increasingly for China. While the United States and China share an interest in ensuring that North Korea does not obtain a nuclear weapons uh, capability, um, retain, excuse me, nuclear weapons capability, we have obviously not always agreed on the best way to reach that objective. In the last few months, however, we have worked together to draft and pass the toughest UN Security Council resolution in a generation to try to compel the leadership of the DPRK to rethink its pursuit of nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles. If fully and effectively implemented. Uh, UN Security Council Resolution 2270 will significantly reduce North Korea, the regime's ability to procure, pay for, or produce weapons of mass destruction, and will challenge the calculus of the leadership in North Korea. But I want to emphasize only if it is fully and effectively implemented. As North Korea's largest trading partner, China has unique leverage. We welcome President Xi's commitment at the Nuclear Security Summit earlier this month to fully implement the Security Council Resolution. It is too early to draw firm conclusions about China's enforcement, but there are some early trade restrictions that China has imposed that suggest that China is committed to following through on implementation of a resolution that it took the lead in producing at the UN. Uh, but the jury remains out. We've encouraged China to contribute more, to apply its significant capabilities as a rising economic and political power responsibly in order to help meet practical needs in the international community, from wildlife trafficking to public health. We've also seen China step up in a meaningful way to the challenge of conflict in fragile countries. In Afghanistan, uh, we joined together, the United States and China, with Afghanistan and Pakistan to form something called the Quadrilateral Coordination Group on the Afghan peace and reconciliation process. And the 2015 uh, UN Leaders Summit on Peacekeeping, uh, at that summit, President Xi announced a new Chinese peacekeeping rapid response standby force, training for peacekeepers from other countries, and 100 million for the African Union's peacekeeping operations. China contributes more troops and police to peacekeeping missions than any other member of the permanent five members of the Security Council, and it's the second uh, largest funder. Of course, even as we try to build cooperation with China, we are directly engaging our significant differences with the goal of resolving or narrowing them while preventing conflict. Significant areas of difference remain around China's assertive and provocative behavior in the South China Sea, its conduct in cyberspace, its denial of internationally recognized human rights and fundamental freedoms to its own citizens. We're, of course, not a claimant to the territorial and maritime disputes in the South China Sea, but we have a clear national interest in the way those claims are pursued to include upholding freedom of navigation, respect for international law, and the peaceful resolution of disputes. And our alliance commitments remain ironclad. We oppose the use of force or the threat to use force to try and advance maritime or territorial claims, and we call on all parties in the South China Sea not just China, to resolve disputes in a peaceful manner. These issues need to be decided on the merits of China's and the other claimants' legal claims and adherence to international law and standards, not the strength of their militaries or law enforcement ships or the size of their economies. For years, we clashed with China over our opposition to cyber-enabled theft for commercial gain by state actors. 
we persisted in engaging China on that issue. In the lead up to President Xi's visit uh, last fall, China and the United States agreed to an unprecedented set of cyber commitments, including an agreement that neither government will conduct or knowingly support cyber-enabled economic espionage for commercial gain. We are watching very closely to ensure this commitment is followed by action. We remain concerned about recent moves by China that reduce space for free expression, including a raft of new domestic legislation that, if enacted as drafted, could shrink space for civil society and academia, inhibit U.S. business activities, and result in further rights abuses. We're alarmed by the ongoing crackdown on lawyers, religious adherents, and civil society leaders, and by growing attempts to restrict internationally recognized fundamental freedoms, including the freedom of expression. We are deeply troubled by China's willingness to threaten journalists with expulsion or the non-renewal of their visas as a tool to influence their reporting. The President, Secretary of State Kerry, and others regularly raise individual cases and systemic concerns with China. We will continue to reinforce the message that protecting human rights and fundamental freedoms of association, peaceful assembly, religion and expression, and respecting the rights of members of minorities will make China more stable, more secure, and more prosperous. Mr. Chairman, for seven decades now, uh, and as you noted, uh, the United States has invested in a system of international institutions and principles and norms designed to protect the right of all nations to pursue their interests irrespective of their size or strength. This international architecture has created a foundation of peace and stability that unlocked a period of unprecedented economic growth, nowhere more so than in East Asia. It's not only benefited the United States, it's benefited China and all the countries in the region. It is our shared interest to see that these standards are strengthened, not undermined. We've shown a readiness to welcome China as a global leader and responsible advocate for the international order. We want China as our partner in many endeavors, and we believe our nations and the world would undeniably be better for it. But in the end, only China can choose to assume that role and demonstrate the commitment to international law and standards necessary to achieve it. Thank you very much, and I welcome uh, your questions. Mr. Secretary, thank you uh, for your testimony. And um, as a courtesy to the committee, I'm going to withhold and wait for interjections along the way my time. So I'm going to turn to Senator Gardner and uh, look forward to his questions. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for uh, this hearing today. It's a very important hearing, one of the most important hearings that we will hold this Congress. Uh, and thank you, Secretary Blinken, for your participation in this today. It's very important that we hear from you. and. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, on February 18, 2016, President Obama signed the bill that Senator Menendez and I had worked together on, the North Korea Sanctions and Policy Enhancement Act, it became Public Law 114-122, expanding U.S. sanctions against Pyongyang and others who aid the North Korean government. It was followed by the U.N. resolution. As you know, the legislation calls for mandatory investigations and designations of entities regardless of where they are based. We know that China's trade is North Korea's largest trade partner, and with over $1.2 in bilateral trade last year, uh, that's a significant amount. China has pledged to comply with the sanctions and has undertaken some new measures, according to the New York Times, including uh, article March 31st uh, entitled uh, Cross-Border Trade, Legal and Illegal, flows pretty much as usual and seems to be largely unhindered by the new rules traders lo and local officials have said. So that would uh, sort of uh, counter uh, the measures that they have said that they have put into place. On April 13, 2016, according to an announcement by China's General Administration of Customs, China's trade with North Korea rose by 14.7% in the first quarter of 2016, while imports from North Korea rose by 10.8%. 
To what extent has the PRC so far complied with the relevant international restrictions on North Korea, including those imposed by the UN resolutions? Uh, thank you, Senator. Let me first thank you uh, for the legislation, uh, which we think has been a very, very valuable tool uh, to um, put in play along with the UN Security Council resolution. And uh, indeed, as you mentioned, uh, the President signed the executive order in order to implement uh, both the legislation and the UN Security Council resolution. We believe that the combination of the UN Security Council resolution and the authority uh, in the legislation gives us the most effective tools we've had uh, to try to compel a change in North Korea's calculus uh, and also uh, to strongly encourage other countries to fully implement their obligations. So among those obligations, as you know, um, with regard to the UN Security Council resolution, are that all cargo in and out of North Korea uh, should be subject to mandatory inspection. Uh, for the first time, we have sectoral sanctions that limit or ban even the exports of coal, iron, gold, uh, rare earth materials, and also the import of aviation or, uh, or rocket fuel. There are prohibitions on small arms and other conventional weapons imports. Uh, in addition, financial sanctions targeting banks, assets, uh, and ban the uh, all dual-use nuclear and, and missile-related items. So with regard to China's compliance, um, two things. First, because China took uh, a lead role in actually designing the resolution and um, carrying it forward through the Security Council, uh, we believe it would be logical for it to follow through on actually implementing the resolution. As you said, it has issued certain new regulations uh, regarding restrictions on the importation of coal, rare earth, and other materials. Similarly, uh, it has issued uh, regulations with regard to exporting to North Korea uh, jet fuel, including uh, rocket fuel. Um, it's said the right things as well, but the proof is in the pudding. And what we're watching very carefully is whether, in fact, it will implement those regulations. I saw the story that you referred to, um, Senator. I think it was, it's a, um, a mixed bag. Clearly, there is trade that continues to go back and forth across the border, and this is something we're looking at very carefully, along with our Japanese and Korean partners. Some of the bigger ticket items, though, it appears as if, at least initially, uh, there are efforts to stop the, stop the flow. Now, it's one thing to stop it even for a brief period of time. It's another thing to sustain that, and that's the other challenge that I think we have to face, to make sure that it's sustained. The administration was required to undertake mandatory investigations under the public law 114-122. Have those mandatory investigations begun? My understanding is that we are looking into uh, any uh, entities uh, or individuals that um, we have evidence are violating uh, the, uh, the restrictions and the sanctions. So those mandatory investigations have begun? I believe so, but let me, okay. let me come back to you with that. I want And to, if so, do you know how many of these investigations are concerning entities that are located in China? Um, I can't give you a number, but I'm happy to come back okay. to you. With and have, has the administration determined so far that any of the entities based in China uh, directly or indirectly engaged in illicit conduct described in uh, Section 104A of the Act? To my knowledge, we have not made any determinations as of yet, but I'm happy again to come back to you and with the Do you know if the administration uh, will be uh, any date of the findings mm -hmm. to be released or the conclusions of the investigations? I, I don't have a date for you, but again, happy to come back and, and discuss uh, that in more detail. Does the administration plan to execute national security waivers provided under the law with regard to any of these entities, particularly those in China? Um, I, uh, Senator, I can't, I, I can't say in advance. Um, I, I think what we will have to see is where we are on the full implementation uh, of the Security Council resolution and the um, requirements under the law and the executive order. 
and make a determination as well on that basis. Uh, if we're seeing strong, good, sustained cooperation, that might be something to factor in, but it's certainly um, something we need to consider as we go forward. I'm particularly interested in the status of the investigations okay. and the status of any national security waivers that the president might determine under the mandatory investigations required okay. by the act. I want to shift now to uh, South China Sea. Uh, PACOM, Admiral Harry Harris, uh, talked in February uh, during his testimony before the Armed Services Committee that China is clearly militarizing the South China Sea. Uh, you'd have to believe in a flat earth to believe otherwise. I believe that was his quote. Uh, China's continuing reclamation activities in South China Sea, violation of international law, and militarization of the islands is a clear attempt to bully its smaller neighbors and to clearly challenge the United States as a Pacific power in one of the most important zones, trade zones, uh, navigation zones in the world. Um, do you believe that, uh, do you agree that we need to dramatically boost our efforts uh, underlined under various uh, legislation that's been included in NDAA and others? Uh, we share your concerns, uh, and indeed, this is something that we are intently focused on, and we are working across the board uh, to uh, address this concern. As you know, Senator, uh, we're not a claimant ourselves, but as I said earlier, we have a profound national interest in the way the various claimants pursue their claims, and anything that threatens freedom of navigation, that um, threatens the peaceful resolution of disputes, or that undermines international law, including uh, the law of the sea obligations, is a problem uh, for us. In addition, uh, to the extent um, China is uh, making it more difficult for us to carry out our own commitments uh, in our alliances, that's also uh, a problem for us. Do you believe that our uh, FONOP operations right now are what you would characterize as routine? Uh, yes. And do you think, uh, you, you think the, the current pace of activity is a routine activity? I would, I would say, Senator, we've seen the number of FONOPs um, or um, freedom of navigation operations um, increase uh, over uh, the last couple of years. Um, I think you can anticipate uh, that they will proceed on a regular basis. Uh, do you believe the current pace of activity is what will uh, indicate activities in the future as well? Um, I don't want to anticipate uh, the, how the pace may change, but I can say that we will, uh, we're engaged in uh, regular uh, FONOPs, and those will continue. I would hope that we would actually step up our pace of activities in South China Sea, move to a routine uh, efforts of freedom of navigation operations. I believe that mm -hmm. uh, sending one a quarter is simply insufficient uh, to send the strong message to China uh, that we're not just putting some kind of lip service to, or some very minimal action to the lip service that we provided, but that we actually engage in routine activities in the region, uh, that we would step up our activities and make these more than just a regular occurrence, but a routine, indeed, in fact, occurrence. And I also believe that we need to step up our asymmetric diplomatic efforts when it comes to uh, South China Sea's activities. Clearly, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, freedom of navigation operations that we have undertaken in South China Seas as of today have not sent the message to China that this is a, a, a navigable waterways under international law. Uh, and I believe, uh, as I'd be interested in your opinion on this, that they will ignore uh, the decision. Uh, and I would like to know our diplomatic strategy after the decision issued by The Hague uh, on the Law of the Sea Treaty. I'd also be interested in hearing your thoughts on asymmetric diplomatic actions that we can take in theaters that are beyond the South China Sea in order to gain the attention of China uh, to let them know that this is an egregious activity that must stop. Thank you, Senator. Um, a couple of things on that. First, um, we have been very actively uh, and uh, very aggressively uh, messaging China privately and publicly about its obligations, as well as the obligation of other claimants. Uh, we have been working very closely 
uh, with all of the claimants uh, to um, secure from them uh, an understanding that, for example, uh, the arbitration uh, is an appropriate mechanism to resolve these disputes, and uh, it will be binding on the parties uh, once it is issued. Uh, we've been rallying support for these principles, including uh, at the special summit, the first summit of the ASEAN countries with the United States at Sunnylands, the declaration that came out of that affirmed the vision of a rules-based order. Um, we've been strengthening, at the same time, the maritime capacity of most of our partners uh, in the region. As long as the United States uh, remains fully present in the region, any tactical advantage that China derives from some of these outposts will be vastly outweighed by the net effect of surrounding itself with increasingly angry, increasingly suspicious neighbors who are increasingly close to the United States. As a strategic proposition, uh, China's actions are alienating uh, virtually every country in the neighborhood, and they are looking to the United States increasingly. So our engagement with those countries uh, has reached, I think, uh, unprecedented levels. And if you go down the list of countries in um, Southeast Asia, as well as in Northeast Asia. The relationship with our treaty allies, as well as with emerging partners, is deeper and stronger than it's been, and in particular, the cooperation on maritime security uh, is greater than it's ever been. So the arbitration decision is, a is an important moment, and it is our hope that whatever the decision, uh, China and the Philippines will respect the, uh, the decision and adhere to it. Indeed, we've said to China, if the decision gives you reason on any of the different issues in dispute, we'll be the first to defend it. But similarly, uh, if uh, the Philippines is given reason, we will defend that uh, very strongly. So I, I think we're good. Thanks. Yep. Thank you. That's okay. <laughs> uh, I, I would just before turning to Senator Menendez say that uh, freedom of navigation operations that happen once a quarter are viewed as nothing but symbolic. Uh, with the availability of vessels that we have in the region. I don't know why we're not doing it weekly or monthly to operationalize that in a real way. It's, I don't think there's any question, but that China views that solely as a, a light touch symbolic effort. And uh, I have no idea why we're not um, cruising within those 12 nautical miles on a weekly basis. But with that, Senator Menendez. And thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Secretary, uh, uh, as the co-author with Senator Gardner on the North Korea Sanctions Act, uh, I'd ask you to give me the same set of answers you're going to give him. Uh, I would have asked you those line of questions, and I appreciate uh, that Senator Gardner did, so I won't belabor it other than to uh, say I think it was a, a moment in which we saw how we can, in a bipartisan way, be a partner with the executive branch, and uh, I hope the executive branch would embrace that more uh, in the future in a similar set of circumstances. So I'd like to see those answers as well. Uh, I see much of the United States uh, political and economic future depending on the Asia Pacific. And that means robust engagement across uh, the region. Uh, but that engagement needs to be strategic. And from my perspective in the region, uh, China is dominating, uh, leaving partners there fearful that the United States will stand by as uh, China exploits the lack of Western challenges to its aggressive posturing. It seems to me that instruments of national power, diplomacy, economic intelligence, and military are only useful when they are fully deployed. And while uh, I've heard your comments and those of the administration, 
and the attempt to do your best, China is doing its worst. Um, it's not playing the role that it could be playing with respect to North Korea, destabilizing um, uh, influence. It's constructing artificial land masses and militarizing them. It's not just that they're trying to claim them, they are militarizing them. Uh, that threatens shipping lanes and international boundaries. It's conducting cyber attacks and cyber espionage against the United States, including the high-profile theft of the personal information of 21 million Americans, including maybe yours and mine. Uh, some would call that an act of war. Uh, and on human rights, uh, you yourself publicly noted at the UN Human Rights Council in March that the United States is, quote, alarmed by the ongoing crackdown on lawyers, religious adherents, civil society leaders, and by growing attempts to restrict internationally recognized freedoms, including the freedom of speech. And for that matter, China's consistent uh, support for Russia against the United States and other Security Council members are important votes. So is it that China doesn't understand that their activities are escalating threats against our national interests? Or has China uh, chosen to push our limits, uh, believing that we won't impose consequences? Senator, I think that in various areas, China increasingly, uh, but not dispositively, understands uh, that its actions potentially are having repercussions that are undermining its interests. Um, so as it acts in the South China Sea, in a manner that is aggressive, and as you said very rightly, not only uh, reclaiming uh, pieces of land, but building on them, and then not only building on them, but militarizing them, they uh, run the serious risk uh, of alienating virtually everyone in the neighborhood and pushing those countries in the direction uh, of the United States. That's not a good strategic proposition for China. Now, whether it fully absorbs that lesson and works in a much more cooperative fashion to resolve these disputes, that remains to be seen. With regard to North Korea, uh, just to cite another example, we've said for a long time to the Chinese that if they uh, would not join us in trying to effectively use the leverage that they have over North Korea to try to move uh, the regime and Kim Jong-un on uh, the very um, objectionable and unlawful conduct they're engaged in on the nuclear missile programs, we would be compelled to take steps to further defend our partners and allies and ourselves. And while these steps would not be directed at China, they might well be things that China does not like. Uh, and indeed, that's exactly what we've done, including beginning formal consultations on the deployment of a THAAD missile defense system to Korea, to which China uh, objects, uh, to include uh, increasing uh, our presence and posture in the region. Um, we now have in the Asia-Pacific region in general, uh, overall, uh, close to 60% of our entire Navy. We have our most sophisticated assets deployed in the region. F-22s, F-35s, P-8 Poseidons. Um, and again, this is not directed at China, but um, to the extent that China is not using its influence in a positive way and the leverage that it has in a positive way, we're going to continue to take additional steps to defend ourselves. So I think China has to factor all of that in, but I would uh, agree that the jury is still out. Um, so let me ask you this. So if their actions as you say, uh, are affecting their own interests, mm -hmm. but they seem to be on a course that continues to affect their own interests in the negative, to take your view. 
then pushing countries within the region closer into uh, association and commitment with the United States is one element, but the result of that is obviously those countries in and of themselves do not have the wherewithal to face the challenge uh, that China presents economically and militarily. So the question is, for example, other than that of course we appreciate the relationship with countries in the region, uh, long-standing in many cases, notwithstanding whatever China does on our own bilateral uh, basis and multilateral basis. But what is it that you do about the continuing escalation in the South China Sea of uh, China's uh, reclaiming of territory, or claiming of territories and militarizing them? What is it that you do to stop uh, the continuous march that they are on? Because right now, I view us as observers of what is going on, maybe as protesters of what is going on, but not much beyond that. Um, Senator, I think uh, we are taking um, significant actions to uphold freedom of navigation, to uphold international law, uh, and to um, encourage the peaceful uh, resolution of disputes. First, we have worked uh, together with virtually all of the countries uh, in the region to establish those principles and to create a, a greater understanding of what the requirements are of international law. Second, as we've discussed, uh, we have been engaging in freedom of navigation operations. Uh, their number has increased. Wrong with the mic. Is that, there you go. You hear it? Sorry. Uh, Hopefully it wasn't the Chinese interfering with you. <laughs> <laughs> their number has increased. Um, we've engaged in joint patrols, most recently with the Philippines. Uh, we've been uh, engaged in air patrols uh, over the, um, some of the uh, uh, land features that uh, China has been uh, acting on. Um, we've been working to build the maritime capacity of virtually all of the countries in the region. We have a significant program uh, to build that capacity. Uh, it's focused uh, intensely on the Philippines, Vietnam, and other countries that have expressed strong interest. Um, at the same time, we've strengthened uh, our treaty alliances with, with all of the countries uh, with whom we have alliances, and uh, we're working to engage other partners. So in all of this, uh, we are both developing the um, capacity uh, and um, asserting the principles of international law that we expect all of the countries in the uh, region to adhere well, to. Well, let me make two observations, Mr. Chairman, in closing. One is that um, some of us believe that we need a more robust engagement in this regard and a more robust response, and I would just simply say that part of our challenge, which I recognize, uh, uh, if we're going to be intellectually honest, is that with China as our banker, uh, that's an increasing challenge. And we need to liberate ourselves from that uh, in order to not have that as part of the equation going on here. And the second thing is I want to wave my saber early. I know you're not going to tell me what the 2016 TIP report is going to be like, but I will tell you this. Uh, I want to know the standards uh, the material steps that China needs to take to demonstrate the kind of significant progress that would need to raise its uh, ranking because uh, I am concerned about what happened in the last uh, trip report in general and I would be extremely alarmed after listening to your comments uh, at the UN uh, Commission on uh, Human Rights and, and others uh, that all of a sudden China does well. Uh, passing a law is not enough. Uh, unless you have enforcement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, and I, I just, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm always 
glad when my friends on, on uh, your side of the aisle mentioned the indebtedness that we have, and I want to thank you for that. I think it's still the greatest national security threat we have, but to, to our secretary, just want to recite what you just said. We have 60% of our naval assets in the region, and yet we conduct freedom of navigation operations once a quarter. China knows we have 60% of our assets there, and they know that what we're doing is, is playing. They understand that we're not really serious about this issue that you've been asked about now by two senators. I would just say it's evident that, uh, that there's not much seriousness in really pushing on this freedom of navigation issue when we have 60% of our vessels in the region and once a quarter we take them within 12 nautical miles of areas that they are improving. With that, Senator Isaacson. Thank you, thank you Mr. Chairman. I want to talk about two things that are redundant. One is North Korea and one is the South China Sea, and I apologize for continuing to bring those up. The other is Sub-Saharan Africa, if I could for just a second. First of all, with regard to North Korea, you said, if I heard it right in your stated testimony, that China played a critical role in development of UN Resolution 2270. Is that correct? Yes, it is, Senator. And you then said that it was important that China demonstrate they would fully and effectively embrace that, that resolution. Is that correct? That's correct. Does that mean they have yet to demonstrate they're going to fully embrace that resolution? It takes time to gauge whether they, any uh, of the countries um, are fully implementing the resolution. We have to see countries take practical uh, measures to fulfill their obligations, including with regard to inspections, including with regard to uh, exports from North Korea. Uh, and China, of course, because of its unique relationship, uh, is particularly important in this regard. But this is something that takes uh, some time to fully evaluate. Which leads me to my point or question. <clears throat> Every alcoholic needs an enabler. Every addict to any bad habit of human nature needs an enabler. I worry sometimes that China may be an enabler to North Korea for, when, for reasons that benefit them by keeping the United States busy. So when they are a part of a, if they're not fully and effectively a part of 2270, even if they tried to help to develop it, then they're not helping us in a situation that's very dangerous to the United States. And every time Pyongyang launches a missile or talks about a nuclear fissionable material or anything. It's always talking about it vis-a-vis -vis the United States, never the, never the Chinese. Yet the Chinese are right there on the border. I, I read yesterday somewhere, and I wish I'd written it down because I didn't. The Chinese put 2,000 more troops on their border with North Korea. Is that right? That's what I understand. I, I saw that report. Well, th then you got a situation where the enabler, if, if they are the enabler, I'm not making an accusation, I'm making an observation, but if, if they're an enabler for North Korea, they're putting 2,000 troops on their border to send the signal, hey, don't mess with us. But yet we're looking to them to be the helpful, helpful arbitrator in 2270. China's got having the best of both worlds. On the one hand, they're enforcing their, their security, but on the other hand, they're not really helping us to enforce what we need for the world community. Can you address that? Thank you, Senator. I would say that China is both increasingly frustrated with North Korea and its actions, and increasingly concerned about the implication of those actions for China's interests, not just our interests. Um, China does share an interest with us in seeing North Korea denuclearize, but it's chosen different means of trying to achieve that objective. It is especially concerned, as you know, with the prospect of instability uh, on the peninsula that leads to millions of North Koreans heading into China. It also has found utility in having North Korea as a strategic buffer between it and us, or our ally in this case, uh, South Korea. But what China seems increasingly 
to be recognizing is that the greatest source of instability in the region is North Korea and the actions of its regime. That's why it's taking a, a tougher line. Similarly, it has repeatedly tried to get the North Koreans to stop the provocative actions. And instead of stopping those actions, North Korea has actually um, humiliated uh, the Chinese by engaging in those actions on the very day or the day after senior Chinese officials were visiting Pyongyang to try to get them to stand down. So for those reasons, as well as what I said earlier, the fact that we've made clear to China that we, we will take steps to better protect ourselves and our partners um, if this continues, uh, and we have, even though those steps are not directed to China, they're things that China is not enthusiastic about. For all of those reasons, we think it is more serious. Now, whether it does enough and whether it fully uses its leverage and whether it fully implements the resolution, that remains to be seen. Well, following, I'm going to follow up on that point. I hope the State Department will send the signal to us if they reach a point that they see that, North Korea, that uh, the Chinese are not fully and effectively engaging their role in terms of 2270. We need to, if they're, if, they are ha if they're having it both ways, on the one hand, they're saying they're helping us in the UN to get a good resolution. On the other hand, they're looking the other way on the North Korean border. They're looking on the, the other way on their responsibility. It doesn't help us out at all, and we need to call them out for it. That's my point. Thank you. Second, I'll skip the South China Sea because I'm going to run out of time because I want to go to Sub-Saharan Africa, but I want to associate myself with everything the chairman said with regard to the visibility of the United States naval assets in the South China Sea. The current visibility we have is paltry at best, and we need to send the right signal to the Chinese that we do care about the South China Sea and we do care about open navigable waterways in that part of the world. My last point is on Sub-Saharan Africa. I've been there a number of times seeing the Chinese working, building roads, building buildings, building hospitals, building all kinds of things, and extracting a lot of rare earth minerals, extracting a lot of assets and energy and things of that nature. Are they continuing on their push yes. to do that in South in Africa? Yes. What are we doing to match that from a standpoint of our own soft power interest? I'd say two things, Senator. First, we have seen um, in Africa, by the way, in other regions, including in Latin America, uh, a significant increase over the last decade or so uh, of China's economic and political engagement. Uh, and it is typically driven uh, by commodity uh, exports to China. That's what they're uh, mostly after. And we've seen an increase in uh, loans from, uh, from state-run uh, banks uh, in China to countries in Africa, uh, in other parts of, of the world. Um, from our perspective, if, and this is a big if, if, as China engages, it actually upholds uh, international trade and investment standards, if it upholds worker and environmental rights, intellectual property rights, if it does all those things, and if it uh, engages in transparent transactions with good governance, then additional investment, particularly in infrastructure, for example, uh, is a positive. And we would like to find ways to work with China, and in some places we have. On the other hand, if it engages um, in practices that are a race to the bottom in terms of the way it invests, that's a bad thing uh, and something we have real uh, concerns about, which we've expressed uh, directly to the Chinese. Um, you're also seeing, I think, including, um, as, uh, as I know you've seen in your, your travels, that the initial bloom on the rose can wear thin. So a country gets significant investment from China, but then if it undertakes an infrastructure uh, project, but it imports all of the workers from China for that project, that's something that the host country is usually not enthusiastic about. Um, if the quality uh, of the product that is uh, uh, built uh, is um, 
uh, underwhelming. That's something that the host country uh, eventually is not enthusiastic about either. So I think there's a sort of market signal that gets set over time that China has to, if it wants to keep doing this, up its game to higher standards. Now, the challenge that we have is that China has state resources that it can apply that we don't have. Uh, they have money that they can invest officially that we can't match with our various programs. We need to clear the way in particular for the private sector, our private sector, to be able to uh, engage, to invest, to trade. That is our great strength, and um, that's why working to improve the business climate in these countries uh, is so important. We can be a facilitator, we can catalyze, but ultimately, I think um, the private sector is the key actor. And there, uh, I'm very confident that when um, these countries are able uh, to work with our companies, to see our technology, our innovation, our products, that's where they're going to want to go. Well, my time's up, but I just want to underline what you just said. That's why this committee's work on AGOA and passing that last year yeah. was so helpful mm -hmm. to the United States in terms of sub-Saharan Africa and the entire continent. And we thank you. Second thing I would say is this. I have seen some evidence that China's investment of money in some of the African countries has a little bit to do with their influence with, the, with those countries in the UN and leveraging those votes in the UN. And although the UN is not a governmental body per se, it's a body that has a lot of influence. We have to be very careful to see they're not buying influence in the UN for their own purposes. Mm -hmm. and Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Now, I, I want to thank you for that exchange. And, and uh, there's no doubt that in many cases, China will invest in a mental-rich country and then end up and use their own workers and over time end up charging far more for the repayment than, than was necessary. And it's a totally self-interested model. On the other hand, I will say there's something to be learned, and, and I appreciate this last exchange. Um, you know, what we did with Electrify Africa, what you did, what members of this committee did, was really empower the private sector to put in place processes that over time will, over the first four years, allow 50 million people in Africa to have electricity, 50 million people, and over time, hopefully 600 million. So. I do hope that, that this exchange uh, will help us move away. Much of what we do in foreign aid is a Cold War model, let's face it, where we're trying to buy influence, but we're not really furthering our business interests. We're not really furthering the quality of life on a sustainable basis of the people we're dealing with. So I do think there's something to be learned from this and an evolution that we ourselves should make to benefit people that we're uh, applying for aid to and benefit our own businesses. But with that, I want to turn to our ranking member. I know he had a very important day yesterday in Maryland, and this morning was still dealing with that. I appreciate him coming in and his participation in this uh, committee hearing. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I do apologize for, for being late. Uh, as this is the day after the primary election in Maryland, I had obligations in, in my state this morning and could not get here until just recently, so I apologize uh, to our witness. Uh, I wear two hats uh, in regards to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. One is the ranking Democrat on the full committee, but also the ranking Democrat on the East Asian and Pacific subcommittee chaired by Senator Gardner. And the two of us have been working very carefully in regards to China, which was one of our biggest foreign policy challenges that we have on so many different dimensions, and it's critically important we get this relationship right in the rebalance to Asia. Some of this discussion has already taken place. Let me just 
underscore the military aspect of this. Uh, Senator Gardner and I are very concerned about the use of threat of military force to address territorial and regional disputes uh, in the China Seas. And we have seen uh, repeated activities by China which really defies uh, the uh, rule of law in resolving uh, territorial issues. And uh, we currently have, um, and also jeopardizes freedom of navigation, as well as potential military conflicts. Uh, there's currently a case pending by the Philippines under the law of the sea, and it'll be interesting to see how the response goes to, to that particular action. This is the Committee of Jurisdiction as it relates to the, uh, uh, that issue, and Senator Garner and I today will be introducing the Asia-Pacific Maritime Security Initiative Act, uh, which uh, will, we believe, give clear direction on the U.S. policies, as has been articulated by this administration and previous administrations, and our commitment to maintain the um, uh, freedom of navigation and to protect our treaty obligations as well as to make sure that the international orders are protected uh, from in regards to commercial interest. So it, it builds on the administration's maritime security initiative and provides the Department of State and Defense with the strategic contacts and resources they need to take clear and concrete measures to support rule-based order for the Asian Pacific region. So Mr. Secretary, we look forward to working with you so that, uh, as many times the administration has said, we speak much stronger when we speak in, in a united voice and when Congress has, has given you the clear direction you need in order to implement U.S. policy. Now, there are other issues that I want to make sure that we have a chance to talk about. Uh, on the economic front, uh, there's, there's significant issues, particularly in light of China's declining economy and the realization of its adjustments it needs to make. Uh, it is the United States and China, two largest uh, trading, uh, part, tr trading uh, countries in the world. Uh, clearly, uh, how they deal in international trade is of great interest to us. We have major concerns about currency manipulation and protection of intellectual property, as we've seen in, in recent years. But I, I want to concentrate on the good governance issue just for one moment. There is a real concern whether will China open space for its citizens to express their own views and ideas or will continue to brutally oppress its own people. We've seen that in the stifling of the ability to disagree with your government, with the religious freedom, with access to the internet, the freedom of the media, their corruption and fighting corruption issues. All that, I think, very much affects the future relationship between the United States and China and I would argue affects the long-term growth and stability of China itself. So can you just share with us uh, what steps the United States is taking to make it clear uh, that we expect continued progress made on the governance side as it relates to human rights and anti-corruption? Thank you very much, uh, Senator. Uh, we share this concern. We share the concern about the crackdown uh, on civil society, uh, on lawyers, uh, on the media, uh, more than 300 people uh, over the last months uh, detained, arrested, uh, some uh, incommunicado. Uh, we've seen most recently uh, the use of forced confessions in state media uh, before uh, people were put on trial or charges were issued against them, particularly in the case of uh, those who were in Hong Kong and were apparently abducted by uh, Chinese authorities. And we've seen a, a raft of new laws that potentially in their implementation 
uh, seriously infringe on, on human rights and, and civil liberties, the national security law, uh, the cyber law, uh, the NGO management law, um, et cetera. We have in public uh, and in private um, very vigorously expressed our concerns to uh, the Chinese government at uh, the highest levels, uh, starting, of course, with the president. Um, on my own most recent trip to China in, um, uh, in January, um, I raised this with all of my counterparts. I met with a number of lawyers uh, whose friends had been uh, imprisoned. Um, we mobilized uh, 12 countries uh, at the United Nations at the Human Rights uh, Council meetings uh, to issue a joint statement uh, expressing their concern and the concern of the international community. We have, of course, our own human rights report, uh, which you're very familiar with, uh, that is very clear uh, about our concerns about China's actions. Uh, we've called for the release of uh, Falun Gong practitioners, more than 2,000 of whom are jailed, and religious freedom for Christians, Tibetan Buddhists, Uyghur Muslims. Um, we had just recently the International Woman of Courage uh, Award uh, issued to uh, Nai Yulan, uh, an extraordinary uh, woman who unfortunately was not given uh, a visa to come to the United States to receive the award. We gave, we gave her the award in Beijing, and then uh, the uh, authorities uh, actually cracked down on her after receiving the award at, uh, at our embassy. But she wanted to receive it, uh, and she wanted to help shine a light on those fighting for human rights, religious freedom, uh, in, uh, in China. So this is a regular, active, and high-level part of our engagement with China across the board. We also have a human rights dialogue with China that seeks to make progress on these issues. Ultimately, though, I think it's exactly what you said. China has to uh, come to the recognition that it will not fulfill its potential if it continues to hold its citizens down, and that the stability it seeks is actually undermined not advanced by repressive actions. That realization has not yet taken hold. I thank you for that answer. I want to ask one other question in regards to North Korea. I was listening to your exchange with Senator Isaacson, I think it was, on the North Korea issue. Yes, they joined us in the United Nations Security Council resolution in regards to North Korea's activities, but it sort of defies logic China has perhaps the most at stake as to what is happening along with the Republic of Korea, so what is happening on the Korea Peninsula. And yet it seems like we've seen this before. They get tough for a little while, then they relax. It seems like they worry about regime change uh, in North Korea. And therefore, they back off and they continue to reward North Korea's uh, which sends a really mixed signal to their government uh, about being able to get away with these types of international violations. Is there any uh, indication we have that China may, in fact, remain strong in condemning the type of activities we've seen in North Korea? It may be, uh, Senator, that the best guarantee are the ongoing provocations by the North Korean regime. Uh, we've seen since the resolution was passed further provocative actions. I think we can uh, anticipate that there'll be more uh, to come. Uh, it's certainly possible in advance of the Korean Workers' Party Congress, which is to take place on May the 6th, that the uh, regime will, in, will do something else, another missile test, maybe even another nuclear test. Uh, every single one of those provocations uh, is another dig uh, at China. Uh, and I think it is, again, underscoring for China something we've been saying for a long time, and that it is now 
increasingly beginning to realize, which is that the greatest source of instability uh, in the region is North Korea and the actions of its regime. Uh, and if, if it fears instability, uh, and we understand that it, that it would, that uh, it should use the leverage that it has, which is unique, uh, to uh, try to get the regime to change its conduct. So we see increasing signs that, uh, it, is un that it is doing that, but it has to be uh, fully, uh, the resolution has to be fully implemented, and again, it has to be, that implementation has to be sustained, as you rightly said. That's what we're looking at. Well, I just encourage you to keep a, a big spotlight on what China is doing or not doing in regards to North Korea. I believe Senator Perdue was next. Thank you. Um, thank you for testifying again. Uh, I, I personally believe, I, I lived in Singapore and, and Hong Kong years ago. I worked extensively in, in China the latter part of my career in business. And I, I personally believe that, that the adage that the 20th century was a century of the Atlantic, the 21st is a century of the Pacific. I, I really believe that. And so I, I welcome your uh, heightened efforts to engage China, to deal with them diplomatically, um, because I think the 21st century, to a large degree, depends on what we do economically, socially, politically with China. So um, I think this, these are formative years right now. They've only been out since the late 80s uh, and re-engaged in, in the, the modern world. And so these are, they have, you know, 20 provinces that have yet to really achieve the economic miracle of the 13 coastal provinces. But I'm really troubled. I met with Admiral Harris late last year, or last year and he was explaining how, in his opinion, that we're approaching parity uh, militarily with China uh, in the Asia theater, that they're spending upwards of $300 billion a year on their military, up some 10% each year the last few years. Our military uh, expenditures have declined the last five years by about 14%. Having said that, it's, it's how they're using it and what, and, and what that is enabling them to do in the South China Sea, vis-a-vis -vis North Korea, et cetera, um, in Africa, and so forth. But I, I think one of the questions I have for, for you today is I want to relate to the cyber issue, and it relates to the military spending, too, because I think the world's very dangerous on five different levels. You have rise of Russia and China. You have ISIS. You have the nuclear proliferation threat with rogue nations. You have cyber warfare and a hybrid warfare that we're dealing with right now. And then the, the arms race in space that we're not talking about. So I want to put China in perspective in that. But relative to their efforts in cyber warfare, I know that President Obama and, and uh, President Xi met in, in March of this year after the September uh, agreement that we had s some cyber commitments back then that, that, and I quote, neither country's government will conduct or knowingly support cyber-enabled theft or of intellectual property. That was in September of last year. Just a, a few days after the March 31st meeting between the two presidents, uh, Admiral Mike Rogers, commander of U.S. Cyber Command, testified before Congress that, I quote, cyber operations from China are still targeting and exploiting U.S. government, defense industry, academic, and private computer networks. Are you aware of specific cases that um, Admiral uh, Rogers is, is discussing there? And then secondly, uh, what are we doing diplomatically with them uh, that you can talk about today in, in open session? relative to this cyber activity that they continue to, to uh, conduct and enable. Thank you very much, Senator. First, I very much share uh, your views about the importance of the region as a whole, uh, as well as China in particular. Um, second, with regard to, uh, to cyber, we uh, indeed have profound differences uh, with China over its um, behavior in, in this space. And that really came to a head uh, last year in advance of the summit, as you said, with, um, between President Obama and President Xi Jinping. Um, we have differences over the philosophy of how the cyberspace is managed, and of course, we have differences over China's actions in cyberspace, especially 
a place we've drawn a very bright red line, and that is with regard to uh, cyber theft for commercial gain. Um, it's no uh, secret or surprise that countries seek to get information uh, about each other. But what we don't do, what we won't do, and what we insist that others do not do, uh, is to use cyber tools to gain information for uh, commercial gain. Um, and we have tried to impress that uh, on, the, uh, on the Chinese. Out of that meeting, uh, because we elevated this issue, um, we got a series of commitments uh, from China. Um, a timely response to requests for assistance when there is malicious activity that we see emanating from China in the cyber domain. Um, no theft for commercial gain. Um, working together to identify and promote norms of state behavior in cyberspace during peacetime, and then a minister level, um, uh, secretary level a mechanism to fight cybercrime. Since that meeting uh, and, uh, and in recent months, uh, we've seen some positive steps uh, toward uh, making good on those commitments. Uh, there was a reaffirmation uh, at the G20 uh, meeting most recently uh, of um, international law uh, that it applies to state conduct in cyberspace, the Chinese signed on to that, uh, and that all states need to abide by norms of responsible behavior and no theft for commercial gain. That was re reasserted. We held the first uh, secretary level, ministerial level dialogue. Um, our secretary of uh, Homeland Security, as well as the attorney general took part. There'll be another one uh, in June. We've been engaged in tabletop exercises. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I, I recognize the commercial dimensions. I'm going to run out of yeah. time. But I want to move. Sure. I'm sorry. We, we ha no, you're, this is great information, but uh, we do have evidence that this is state involvement and that PLA is involved and so forth. Is that correct? So in the past, as you know, uh, we've actually um, indicted uh, right. people affiliated with the PLA or members of the PLA uh, for that conduct. And we are working very actively uh, to when we see uh, something happening to try and take it to, uh, to, to find the source of that uh, and to, um, to act accordingly. Um, and with regard to the specific, to the cases that um, Admiral Rogers uh, referenced, right. um, I'm not exactly sure which ones those were, but I'm happy to, to, okay. to follow we up. Can take that and up. there I may well be other, active investigations. I, I have one other question then um, in this area. You know, in September last year, there was a joint uh, statement put out that included four points of this agreement in September of 15, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we reported the State Department, I think, and the White House reported that the agreement had four points. So this is a small point, but I want to get I want to get clarity on it. When it was reported in China and in Chinua, their their uh, paper, they included a fifth point. So the question is: Is the fifth point relate to the Office of Personnel Management specifically? Was there something in there that uh, is there a reason that we did not want to disclose that? Um, there's an ongoing investigation of what happened with regard to the Office of Personnel Management. Um, and uh, certainly, um, I think we all uh, share uh, the concern, both as a matter of public policy and as, and, and as a personal matter, since, um, as was referenced earlier, uh, that intrusion uh, gained access to uh, the files of many people working in government. Um, trying to attribute the exact source of that intrusion is an ongoing uh, effort. I understand. Is there a, was there a fifth point in the agreement? Um, I'm not, uh, I'm not recalling except other than to say we've made it clear to the Chinese that there are some actions in the cyber realm. Again, understanding that countries try to get information sure. from each other, that there are some um, intrusions that are too big to ignore. Um, and certainly uh, 
what happened with regard to OPM would fit into that category. When do you think we'll have a definitive uh, report on that uh, intrusion? Let me, if I can, Senator, come back to you on that. I, I need to right. check with my colleagues. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Apologize. We're in a little bit of a conversation. I want to take a, uh, just I want to make a commercial announcement, if I could. I know there's been some discussion in the caucus regarding the Cotton Amendment. Um, and I know we're going to have a cloture vote at noon. I, I just want to say that I met with him earlier today. He dropped the provision in his amendment that was problematic relative to licensing so that U.S. companies could still license the purchase of heavy water, be licensed to purchase heavy water. The only provision that he still has in his amendment is blocking next year's appropriations money from being used to buy heavy water directly with U.S. government funding. I've talked to the Energy Secretary about it. There is no plan for that anyway. We're, all the heavy water we're going to purchase is now in Oman, and the funds are set aside from that out of this year's money. So I just hope that, I mean, it seems to me he's shown some flexibility. I just wanted to share the other side of this. I appreciate that very much, and I hope that somehow, probably not at noon, I understand, but later today we'll figure out a way to move ahead because he is showing responsible flexibility on this, and, and I hope that we won't just take a dogmatic position that Congress can't uh, have its will, if you will, on some of these provisions that, that matter to folks. Yeah, Mr. Chairman, let me, uh, first of all, thank you for the manner in which you have been trying to resolve these types of issues. This is clearly within the jurisdiction of our committee because it deals directly with uh, the Iranian compliance with the JCPOA. So it's clearly a matter for our committee uh, to, uh, to take up. I, I get a little prickly when uh, there are uh, appropriation amendments offered that are within the jurisdiction of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee as to taking the collective uh, input of our committee I think would be useful. And of course that is not available when we get these amendments and then we're asked to act on them. Uh, there's going to be sensitivity to anything that's done, anything remotely related to the JCPOA. We know that. And it's always helpful to be able to know the facts before we have to vote on it. And sometimes uh, the members that are not on this committee offer amendments that don't know all the facts. Uh, I want to see the Appropriations Committee move forward, the appropriation process move forward. I just think they would be better off not offering amendments that are within a jurisdiction of another committee on an appropriation bill. That's regular order. So I think we've been better off that there was no amendment offered and that this committee could take up this issue if there's a problem in regards to Iran's disposal of heavy water, let us take it up, let us try to develop the right policy, but don't try to do it on an appropriation bill. At least that's my view, that it, we're better off using the order of this committee than trying to resolve it on the floor of the Senate. And I appreciate the, the protection of our committee's jurisdiction. I would just say that, um, it is also in the Energy Committee, and this is an appropriation for the Energy Committee, and the Energy Secretary is the person who's charged with purchasing uh, heavy water from Iran. And uh, it's actually, a, the way it's written now in particular, a, a fairly thoughtful amendment, and I would hope that what would happen is the Energy Secretary and Chief of Staff at the White House and others would engage with all of us and we'd figure out a way to resolve this I'm with so we you can on move that. ahead. Okay. So with that, uh, Senator Markey, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. And it's just important to know that um, 
we purchased the nuclear warhead material from the Soviet Union. Um, thank God we did 500 metric tons. We used it to generate electricity in the United States. Thank God that we did that. It cost us $1.6 billion. It was a win-win for our country. Um, thank God that um, Libya dismantled its nuclear weapons program. Thank God that uh, South Africa dismantled its nuclear weapons program. So towards the goal of you know, advancing our nonproliferation objectives, which are the highest that we have ostensibly in our government, um, repurchasing that heavy water uh, from Iran advances that goal, and I just think we have to keep that in mind. It's been a bipartisan goal that we've had over the years. We should not interrupt a program like this uh, without understanding its long-term consequences. Um, Secretary Blinken, two weeks ago, the Department of Justice indicted uh, China uh, General Nuclear Power Company, a state-owned firm of conspiring over the course of two decades to illegally obtain U.S. nuclear technology. Uh, the Justice Department has previously indicted five members of the Chinese military on charges of hacking into Westinghouse computers to steal uh, reactor designs. From your perspective, if proven, would allegations uh, that have been made constitute violations of the U.S.-China nuclear cooperation agreement that entered into force last year? Um, Senator, I'd have to look at that very carefully. I'd want to give you a considered opinion. If I could come back to you on that, I'd appreciate it. Um, that would be fine, but I would just, I just want to say from my perspective that these alleged thefts of U.S. technology are deeply alarming. They raise the question of whether China can be trusted not to divert U.S. origin technology or fissile material to military purposes, and they underscore the imperative of tightening regulations on U.S. nuclear exports to China, uh, together with the proliferation risk exemplified by the case of serial proliferator uh, Carl Lee. This latest indictment reinforces the concerns that I raised um, about the new U.S.-China Civil Nuclear Agreement when the committee reviewed it last May. Although the agreement went into effect last year without the conditions which I suggested during our review, which I thought was a huge mistake, I will uh, soon introduce legislation that would, among other things, require the President to temporarily suspend nuclear technology transfers to China until violations like the ones cited in these indictments are in fact resolved. We just cannot allow China to continue to steal uh, U.S. nuclear secrets with impunity or turn a blind eye to proliferation by notorious scoff laws within its jurisdiction. And that's where I really do feel that the U.S.-China agreement is still um, very weak and we're just going to have to deal with it. So I'm going to be looking to work with members of this committee on a bipartisan basis so that we can police this and uh, hopefully work together in order to um, advance the goal of nonproliferation. Um, I want to ask you some questions as well about the deadly influx into the United States of the synthetic opioid fentanyl from China. Uh, we are now seeing an alarming increase in the number of deaths caused by illicitly manufactured fentanyl and synthetic opioid painkillers. Uh, they um, uh, unfortunately are emanating uh, as a percent very largely from China coming into our country. Uh, 
just in Massachusetts alone, 336 people died from fentanyl-related overdoses last year. Now you multiply that by 50 states, um, and you can see that this fentanyl crisis is absolutely overwhelming the numbers that we have historically been seeing from OxyContin, or Percocet, or heroin. In fact, increasingly, they mix the fentanyl in with the um, heroin, uh, but uh, a new phenomenon has opened up where fentanyl itself alone is being sold on the streets, uh, and it doesn't take one hit of Narcan to have someone survive. It takes two hits, so three hits of Narcan. That's how serious this epidemic is, and China is the epicenter of the problem, which is going to kill tens of thousands of Americans uh, per year unless we stop it. So can you give me an update as to what the uh, conversation is that's going on between the United States uh, and China, and what additional um, uh, actions are you planning on taking? Right. Thank you very much, Senator. We, we've, like you, we've seen the, the impact that this is having on communities uh, across the country, uh, including and particularly in, in New England. Uh, and it is devastating. And we've also seen uh, bipartisan leadership in Congress to try and address uh, this problem, uh, which is greatly appreciated. And, and indeed, uh, China has to be a big part of the uh, solution. We've been engaging them both directly and in multilateral uh, organizations to uh, reduce the production uh, and the trafficking uh, of fentanyl and also of any precursor uh, chemicals, uh, as well as synthetic drugs more, more broadly. Uh, last week, there was actually, as I, I know you know, a meeting uh, of more than 150 countries uh, in New York at the UN Special Session uh, on Drugs. Uh, China took part at a very high level. Its Minister of uh, Public Security represented it. And the effort there is to work on both decreasing global demand, uh, reducing the availability of these chemical precursors, uh, and holding states accountable uh, for uh, their responsibilities under the three international drug uh, conventions, and China is indeed a party to all three of those conventions. So uh, we've been trying to encourage China to meet its obligations um, in these multilateral fora, but also in our direct conversations. We have as well with China something called the Joint Liaison Group on Law Enforcement Cooperation, and there's a, a working group in particular on counter-narcotics where we uh, also try and advance uh, this effort. We've seen some progress, uh, but not enough. We've seen progress in terms of enforcement uh, of cases, We've seen progress in terms of China putting, um, I believe, 116 uh, drugs uh, and psychotropic uh, substances on their control list, including fentanyl. Um, so that was, uh, that was a step forward. Um, the DEA uh, has the, uh, the primary lead on this, uh, and um, I'm happy as well to go back to them uh, to um, uh, be able here's, here's to tell you. I don't know what the authority is that the DEA has to tell China to cut it out to just stop it or else, mm -hmm. or else, or else, mm -hmm. or else. Same thing is true with mm -hmm. the proliferation of nuclear materials, or else. I mean, we're dead serious about these things. These are ticking time bombs, mm -hmm. the nuclear materials and the fentanyl. These are the things that are gonna kill people, mm -hmm. kill them. And so fentanyl is, is just the epidemic that's rising. China is at the center of it and I'm still not sure that fentanyl has been elevated to the level of intellectual property, for example, mm. Mm -hmm. as an issue. 
it should be at least as high as intellectual property, at least. It's going to be killing tens of thousands of people a year in the United States. And so I just think it's critical that this conversation take place at the highest level and that they know, that is, she knows um, and everyone else knows that this is the top priority. So once you let um, nuclear nonproliferation and fentanyl go by, okay, now you're talking about things which can be managed for the most part, but these things can't be managed, okay? They have long-term consequences that go far beyond the term of office of any one president or any one uh, cabinet officer, okay? So I just don't think the head of the DEA is a high enough level. I don't think anyone in China knows the name of the head of the DEA in the United States. Uh, and with all due respect, you know, even in the United States, uh, uh, he, he might as well be in a, or she, huh? Might as well be in a witness protection program. Yeah, who is that person? Well, they need to know that that person who is saying to you from the DEA that this is a huge problem for our country is being backed up at the highest levels. And if uh, the Chinese leaders do not know, then we're going to suffer a whirlwind of, um, of consequences in our country. So I, I thank you for your service. I thank uh, the administration. No, I heard you clear, clearly thank on that, you. Senator. Thank we'll you. I appreciate it. Thank you, and I hope the senator at some point will indulge me and share with me the name of the head of the DEA. <laughs> but uh, Senator Kane, uh, thank you, you, Mr. Thank Chair, and thank you, Mr. Secretary. How would the U.S. efforts to address China's land reclamation activities in the South China Sea, and also to defend freedom of navigation in that part of the world, be more effective if the Senate ratified the UN Convention on Law of the Sea? It would certainly. Um, it would certainly give us a stronger leg to stand on uh, because we um, constantly, in our engagements with the Chinese, as well as with the other claimants, refer to uh, the Law of the Sea Treaty and the obligations they're under. And in particular, the arbitration that is now taking place between um, the Philippines and China, which is um, a critical moment in seeing if we can move to a place where these differences are resolved. Um, peacefully through mechanisms like arbitration. Uh, that is under the Law of the Sea Treaty. And uh, under the treaty, that uh, under the convention, uh, that arbitration should be binding on the parties. And we continue to point this out to the Chinese. The Chinese love to say to us, you really have no standing to talk about the Law of the Sea because you haven't ratified it. So stop talking to us about it. Uh, you really are not in a good place to do that. Um, the last time I was in China uh, talking about, at great length, about the South China Sea with, um, with our counterparts, uh, I said that um, we're in the ironic situation uh, where the United States has not ratified the law of the sea, but we abide by it. China's ratified it, but ignores it. <laughs> but it would certainly help us uh, in making the argument uh, to actually proceed to ratification. And I think we're hearing that across the board from uh, our military as well as from, uh, uh, from business leaders uh, and others who've testified to that uh, before this committee. There has not been a focus on, on it during my time in the Senate, but just my recollection is 167 nations have ratified the convention, including China. The U.S. is the only major power not to have ratified the treaty. The past three presidential administrations, bipartisan, have supported ratification along with all service chiefs, uh, secretaries of state, the U.S. business community. There have been two positive votes in SFRC for ratification, one in 2004, one in 2007, but it has not seen a vote on the Senate floor. Um, 
the, the law of the sea uh, convention is not solely relevant to you know, contemporary issues with China and the South China Sea. It's also relevant to claims being made by Russia uh, in the Arctic for extracontinental drilling rights. The U.S. might be able to make such claims as well because of Alaska, but we can't make those claims under the laws of the sea without ratification. So I appreciate your, uh, your uh, concern about that, and I hope that we might see the advantages of the U.S. taking it up. We express concern in this committee frequently and in other committees frequently about Chinese island reclamation activities. I don't know why we would want to cut off one path for uh, a diplomatic challenge to those uh, island activities. That, that's, those are the only questions I have, Mr. Chair. Well, thank you. I, I don't know if you found that whether Senator Rubio is going to, I don't think so. Mr. Um, Chairman, I, I would just say. May I have 30 seconds, Mr. Chairman? You can. Let me just say, uh, well, go ahead. And I'll, yeah, and, let me, let me, while Senator Kane is it, just giving up, you know, the Law of the Sea Treaty um, probably was brought up prior to you coming here, I think. And just for what it's worth, there, there just wasn't a case made for it. I mean, in fairness, some of the companies that came up here to advocate for it, you'd call them after their testimony and they'd say, look, on a list of 10 items we have, this will be number 11, okay? It's just not on our radar. The administration asked us to testify. Um, so I think that, you know, there really wasn't much of a case made. There was some sovereignty uh, concerns, no doubt. But it seems to me that as we watch this case play out right now, uh, we can learn about whether this process is one that, um, you know, has some degree of validity. And so we'll see, we'll see what happens and, and with the tribunal and, and go from there. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, and, uh, and I was speaking, obviously, facetiously um, when I was talking about the DEA. Um, Chuck Rosenberg is the head of the DEA. He does a fantastic job, as do the DEA agents all across our country. Yeah. But right now, they are frightened about the impact that fentanyl can have yeah. on our country, frightened. And the pathway is China through Mexico, up to Ohio, up to Massachusetts, to Virginia, to Tennessee, to Maryland. That's the route in, okay? Yeah. And so Chuck Rosenberg needs help. The DEA needs help. The DEA cannot tell China uh, uh, what to do. We need the officials at the highest level. Americans are going to die from this. This is a national defense yeah. risk. It's far greater than any other that uh, China poses to us. And it's happening on a daily basis, okay, this epidemic that's killing Americans. And so I just want to say that uh, Chuck Rosenberg and the uh, the DEA agents are heroes, but heroes need help. You know, they're battling this every day. When a DEA agent goes into a home right now, the fumes, actually, from the fentanyl that they find in a house could kill them right there, the DEA agent. Kill them right there, okay? That's how dangerous this stuff is. So even as they're trying to police it, they get killed as they walk into the house with the fumes. Okay. That's China, Good. okay? Thank Coming you. in through Mexico. And uh, we, we owe these DEA agents, Chuck Rosenberg and his entire team, the help which they need. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman I, think, I, I think we may finish by noon, and so I'm hoping to do so. Uh, but I know Senator. I, I just want to make a brief comment on the law of C. Uh, I, and I support the, the ratification of the law of C. I think it's unlikely we're going to get that in this Congress. But I, I know the chairman's working with our staff to see whether there are certain treaties that we couldn't get completed this year 
to at least start a track record of how we consider treaties. And we can, there's some that are pretty much, I think, teed up for ratification that if we could get them through this Congress. And then I would hope early uh, in the next Congress, uh, Law of the Sea would be one of the ones that we might want to have a hearing on and see where we are as far as the importance. And then we would have the experience of the uh, Philippines case, which I think the chairman makes a very good point on. So I, I saw that my position is not misunderstood. I, I, the tax treaties we have before us should have already passed, and they're hurting American companies right now, and they should pass. I have issues with laws. The I don't want my my discussion of laws the to see to think for people to think that I think it's a good treaty. I've got some issues with it, and and I do have some sovereignty concerns, and those have not been explained fully to me. As always, uh, on every issue, we want to make sure we fully understand. Uh, what's at stake and, and how, how it involves U.S. national interests. But uh, I had significant concerns that weren't answered last time. Um, and again, I think we'll have an opportunity to see how it works uh, uh, with this Philippine-Chinese issue. So do you want to make a final statement of maybe 60 seconds before we adjourn? Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, let me just say that I very much uh, appreciate uh, the both uh, this morning the opportunity to discuss uh, a very complicated but vitally important relationship uh, with China. Very much appreciate the leadership of this committee in working on the many of the issues that uh, flow from that uh, relationship. Uh, and indeed, I think the um, work that was done uh, on the um, DPRK, uh, and in particular uh, the legislation that gave us uh, an important and powerful new tool, um, is a very good example, as you said, uh, of the uh, executive and this committee working closely together uh, in the national interest. So I just want to thank you, uh, thank the ranking member uh, and all the members of the committee for the good work that we've been able to do, and I hope that we'll uh, be able to continue in the months ahead. Thank you. Well, thank you. Um, I think we've filibustered long enough that Rubio is going to step in in just a second. So, uh, <laughs> I, so I think that's the case. But if you guys need to head on down to the floor, I think that'd be fine.
Where was he running from? It's in this building, right? <coughs> Commerce is in this building, isn't it? I guess one of the benefits of becoming a household name is the entire audience has stayed here uh, waiting to listen to your questions. So, uh, well, I appreciate it. I'm sorry I had to run over to Commerce. So we got to get better elevators around this building. But uh, is it my turn? I appreciate you doing this. I really do. And uh, thank you for being here today. Uh, I want to just start out with a statement from an article I read. It's just, I just want to ask you this, if you agree with this line. China is consistently pursuing a single long-term strategy with the effective control of the entire South China Sea as its ultimate goal. Uh, yes, I think that is China's objective. Okay. Just wanted to make clear that that, I mean, because at the end of the day, some of these things are covered as some sort of just one-off experiments or explorations. This is, in fact, the pursuit of their nine-dash line uh, position that the, you, you see it in their passport documents. They claim, for example, we saw today in the Wall Street Journal, I know this was discussed earlier, this uh, USC's new flashpoint in South China Sea dispute. This time it's the Scarborough Shoal, which is only, I believe, 100 nautical miles, 120 nautical miles off the coast of the Philippines, where they've now begun pre preliminary exploration. 
I want to talk about human rights. Um, there was a report earlier this week that the, uh, over the China's overseas NGO management law is being considered by the National People's Congress a Standing Committee. And according to this report, the text is going to require NGOs to register with the Public Security Bureau, including, and I guess, indicating that the Chinese um, government continues to see foreign NGOs as a potential threat to national security. And then, first of all, have, has the State Department expressed its concern over this proposed legislation? Yes, Senator, repeatedly, and indeed at the highest level, starting with Secretary Kerry. I've done it repeatedly. We share exactly that concern. It uh, sends a very bad signal to have NGOs overseen by the Ministry of Public Security. I think you're exactly right. Well, there was, uh, there's also reports that there's possible carve-outs for academic exchange programs in the new draft, which seem to indicate that some favored non-governmental programs will continue while others are going to face more intense scrutiny. Is the State Department going to see carve-outs for certain NGOs? No. Uh, what we're seeking to do is to make sure that the entire community uh, of such uh, organizations and institutions, whether they're academic, uh, whether they're not-for-profit, whether they're business associations, whether they're professional associations that are working in China to the benefit, actually, of China and the Chinese are all treated the same way and treated appropriately. Can I ask you, why hasn't the president met with any Chinese rights lawyers, activists, religious leaders, feminists, or others who have been harassed and detained and repressed by the Chinese government during what has been a marked deterioration in human rights and rule of law in China on his watch? Um, I'd have to, uh, Senator, I have to go back and check and see the meetings that he's had. I haven't been on those trips. I can tell you that on my most recent trip to China, I'm obviously not the president, I made a point of meeting with uh, lawyers uh, whose, whose colleagues and partners, and indeed in one case, um, Someone there. Well, you're pretty aware of the Chinese, of the rights community within China. Are you aware of any meeting the president's ever had with any of them? I, I believe he has, but I, I, need to, I need to go back and check. Okay. And certainly uh, other senior members at the White House, the National Security Advisor, and others have met uh, with members of the rights community. On the, uh, for some time there's been this conversation regarding the utility of various human rights dialogues and concerns that these dialogues have yielded little in terms of substantive outcomes and have have had the unintended consequence of ghettoizing, ghettoizing uh, human rights and U.S. foreign policy. So can, I ask, can you share with us any significant deliverables during the course of the Obama administration that have emerged as a result of the U.S.-China human rights dialogue? Senator, I think it's, 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 a, it's two things. One, I think it has to, it's not either or. It, it, it has to be both. In other words, these issues need to be and are raised, not simply in the context of a human rights dialogue, but at the highest levels, by the President, by the Secretary of State, by other senior officials. And at the same time, having these dialogues and working groups uh, can be a way to see if we can advance in practical areas. Uh, that's, the, that's the idea. Now, we've seen over the course of time various political prisoners uh, released. Um, now, that may be in advance of a summit meeting or some other meeting, but uh, we see that. We're looking, though, for systemic uh, change as well as the uh, release of, of political prisoners. And so it goes to the laws, including the NGO law that you just cited. Um, it goes to um, across the board, the way the Chinese approach this issue. And I think it's a process that just takes a lot of time uh, to, to, see, uh, to see progress. We are doing two things, more than that, but in particular. First, this is something, again, that is on the agenda of every single meeting we have at every level with the Chinese. Second, we're trying to put a spotlight on it uh, internationally. Uh, we went to uh, the Human Rights Council in Geneva. We led an effort by more than a dozen countries 
to show the deep concern that uh, exists across the world uh, about some of China's recent actions uh, in terms of repression of lawyers, civil rights activists, uh, religious leaders, et cetera. Uh, we have our human rights report, as you know, uh, that tries to put a spotlight on. We've given awards to leading uh, members of the rights community to put a spotlight on it. That's very important, too, because at the end of the day, it goes to China's reputation around the world. And that's a reputation that as China engages more and more in the world, it cares more and more about. Okay, my last question is I've been following the troubling developments in Hong Kong, including the long arm of uh, Beijing's power on display most dramatically with the abduction of the, of the booksellers. So we've also seen shrinking space for press freedom and academic freedom all across China, particularly concerning of the ongoing trials against several of the young pro-democracy activists like Joshua Wong, who was a leader in the Hong Kong umbrella movement of 2014. Has the U.S. consulate sent a representative to observe his trial? Um, I'm not aware that, that we have. Let me check and come back to you. We share your concern. Have you both expressed those concerns? With, has the yes. State Department expressed concerns with his particular case with the Absolute, Chinese government? Absolutely. We're watching it very carefully. We're following the trial. Let me check. I, I, I believe we have if we've had an opportunity to do it, but let me come back to you on that. And then Long, on, Alex Chow, Nathan Law, all of these people. Well, the last one is, is the U.S. working with our allies like Sweden to press for the return of bookseller uh, I'm Mr. Minhai, a naturalized Swedish citizen. Mr. I'm sorry if I mispronounced the name. Is it Gui Minhai? And he's a naturalized Swedish citizen. Have we worked with our allies to press for that yes. for the return? Yes. And I've raised that uh, myself directly with my counterparts when I've been there. We find uh, the actions that have taken place in Hong Kong to be of deep concern. Uh, as you know, Senator, there are basic guarantees uh, that were written in to the Sino-British uh, Joint Declaration, to the basic law. Uh, and these guarantees go to freedom of expression, freedom of association, freedom of assembly, an independent judiciary, an independent uh, executive and legislative branch. The only thing that's carved out for China uh, in this is foreign policy uh, and defense. And we've seen increasing Chinese encroachments on the rights that have been established under the basic law. And the bookseller's case is an egregious one, including apparently the abduction of people from Hong Kong to mainland China, and even the abduction of people from other countries. This is something that we have raised directly uh, with uh, senior Chinese leadership, uh, and it is, um, uh, I think, raising and ringing alarm bells, not just here in the United States, but around the world. Thank you. We thank you for being here. Um, I think what you've heard today from both sides of the aisle is uh, significant concerns about uh, territorial issues and claims, the militarizing of those uh, is economic issues, um, the issues of human rights that was just raised, the lack of cooperation, which is almost beyond belief relative to the North Korean issue. And I think a sense on both sides of the aisle that where the administration has been with China is truly uh, just managing differences. Um, I don't know if you're a short timer or the election process ends up uh, uh, genera generating a, a longer tenure for you, but I would just say in the remaining months that you have here, I hope that uh, you'll take concerns that were expressed on both sides of the aisle and, and understand that uh, I think most people who care about foreign relations matters here do feel that we're lacking uh, something that's more coherent on all fronts. And what we're really doing, again, is just managing differences as we move along. Um, I appreciate the committee's uh, 
interest in China and what they're doing, the concerns that they have about the relationship. I think all of us understand that that is still the most important relationship over time that we're going to have. And uh, I think all of us hope that the administration will be more strident uh, in their actions and more clear uh, over time as to what the, the overall strategy is. But we thank you for your testimony. The record will remain open until the close of business Friday. If you would answer questions fairly promptly, we would appreciate it. Again, thank you for your service. And uh, with that, the meeting is adjourned. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.